This podcast may include adult content. Welcome to Bound Off, a literary audio broadcast. Since 2006, we've been publishing great stories for a worldwide audience, but this episode will be our last. We're wrapping up our eighth year of podcasts with a new story from one of our favorite authors, Vincent Lewis Corella. We knew we'd be including one of Corella's previous Bound Off stories in our farewell episodes, and then we realized we couldn't choose just one, so Vincent graciously offered a new story. Find his previous stories in our archives, which we will maintain at BoundOff.com. Dream Houses Written and read by Vincent Lewis Corella Listening time, 34 minutes. Dream Houses by Vincent Lewis Carella. The light of their fire plays tricks with their silhouettes. They seem at a distance to be many men, but there are three of them, and they're not men. He knows this from their manner of speech and their gestures. Their shadows pass back and forth before the flames as they heap more wood onto the fire. He hears them talking, but he can't make out their words. He moves in closer to listen. It's been a long time since he's heard the idle chatter of the innocent. They're just boys. Their skin changes color as the sparks rise. In the glow of the fire, they appear to be themselves aflame. He hadn't taken this into consideration, someone camping so close to the spot. Boys. Maybe he can scare them off, get them to move on. He turns and walks back into the arroyo gathering dry branches from which to build a fire of his own. There is a flash of light followed by a hollow explosion. They can see a plume of black smoke that blots out a portion of the sky. The light flickers for a moment and then fades. They stand on the rim of the arroyo to see, a small wavering fire in the distance, alone on the open plain. Three gaunt silhouettes, skylit by the flame. It's a strange light that falters and dims to a spark. Then it's gone, and all returns to that moonscape blue of sagebrush and night. From the blue night comes the distant figure of the man. He wades through the sagebrush. They can see him from a long way off, a cobalt shadow cut through a sea of Wyoming stars. A coyote in the distance yaps at a mere sliver of a moon. The man whistles loud and sharp, and the coyote quiets and stops yapping, as if he's owned by him. He comes to the edge of their fire and swats the dust from his legs with a pair of leather gauntlets. He's of average height, but broad in the chest, and from his neck to his knees he's clad in black riding leathers and heavy boots with silver buckles that tingle like spurs. He's of average height, but broad in the chest, and from his neck to his knees he's clad in black riding leathers and heavy boots with silver buckles that tingle like spurs. His hair is dark and tied behind his head in a long, plaited queue. He looks like an Indian, and he is one, but the three young men gathered round the fire have never before seen a living native of their land. To them he's but another wanderer, drawn in by their fire, as many others have been on their long journey west from Maine. He steps into the firelight. He has a wind-burned face and a cruel, lipless mouth, and his nose has been broken and poorly set a long time before they were born. 
His hands are large, and he holds them out at his sides, like a gunfighter with his fingers curled. He flexes them to work the stiffness out of his hands, hands that are swollen and gnarled. Everything about him is dark, his hair, his skin, but his eyes sparkle. They shine like a man enlightened or long since insane. He looks hard at the three young men sitting before him, and when he smiles, they can see teeth, square, goat-like, and white as quartz. Listen, the man says. Can you hear them? He tilts his head to listen, but there's no sound. The boys look to each other in confusion. Listen close now, he says. The fire crackles and pops. They watch him. The man shuts his eyes as if to savor the memory of something once sweet, but now tainted, for he frowns and glares back at them. A whole nation of spirits, he says, swept from the plain. He waves his hand in a slow arc before his eyes, and the boys exchange with each other those small knowing glances that signified a shared understanding of the deranged. They hear nothing but the gentle rush of flame. The ghost walkers have risen, the man says, and they're calling for a sacrifice. Blood shall spill on this night, my friends, it is foretold. He stares at the three young men sitting around the fire, just boys, perhaps nineteen or twenty years old, and unlike the men he's used to, they're not prepared to die. He sees this in their faces as he looks for weakness or perhaps signs of strength, watching faces has long been the key to his survival. You know, you're on sacred ground, he says. His eyes are narrow and quick and he scans their faces all. They can feel it. He has that spooky canine ability to read the subtle, almost imperceptible movements of the face. He looks into the eyes of the boys and it only takes a second for him to spot the one who possesses that rare inner light he hoped he'd not find at this fire. Eyes that speak without words. He looks at this one boy, and the boy does not look away. He stares back at the stranger. So many things pass in a glance. The boy does not speak. He watches the man. One of the other boys stands. He's a tall, sloop-shouldered youth with the lean build of a long-distance runner. His eyes are narrow and set within an unshaven face. This is a national park, he says. The man steps closer to him and spits in the dust. Not my nation, he says. I didn't mean nothing by it, the boy says. I know what you meant, the man says. Well, I'm just trying to be friendly, the man smiles. You want to be friendly, he says. Tell me your name. William, the boy says. William Shaw. The man stretches his neck. He rolls his head drunkenly and his bones crack where his skull meets his spine. Do you have any cigarettes, William Shaw? The man says, I'll take a cigarette if you got one. The man squats down in the dust and pulls a silver flask from a pocket hidden in the top portion of his jacket. He offers the flask up to the boys, but this gesture does little to ease their wariness. They all decline. At first, they took him to be some wandering fool, a lost drunk, but he's steady on the balls of his feet. He's calm, and he radiates a looming fatality. The potential for sudden violence is something the boys have talked about around many such fires, and in places further flung than this. 
A boy named William Shaw takes a fresh pack of Marlboros from the pocket of his shirt and strikes the box several times in rapid succession on the butt of his palm. He never takes his eyes off the man. Where are you from, he says to him. Now you don't want to know that, Bill, the man says. Shaw unwraps the cellophane strip from the cigarettes and removes the foil insert. He tosses them into the fire. I'm just trying to make conversation, Shaw says. Conversation can be dangerous, the man says. It can lead to all kinds of things. It's how we come to know each other. Do you want to know me, Bill? Do you want to be known? All I asked is where you're from. The man stares into the fire, his eyes narrow. But that's everything, isn't it? Origins. He nods slightly. He seems to be reading a message in the flames. I'm from a place you cannot imagine, the man says, beyond your comprehension. I've killed men, Bill. I've loved men. And I killed the one I loved most. What else is left to do? The fire crackles and pops and a stream of sparks rises into the sky. The man takes a drink from his flask and makes the universal gesture for a cigarette with his index finger and thumb. Shaw passes him the smokes. The boys eye the man and they eye each other. He takes a cigarette and Shaw offers him a disposable lighter emblazoned with the words, Wall Drug. He looks at it like it's something unholy and lights his cigarette with the glowing end of a brand he pulls from the fire. He takes a long drag and exhales through his nose. Across the campsite he sees their vehicle, an aging Ford Econoline, an old van, sky blue and going to rust, with decals on the windows signifying membership in something he vaguely remembers, hippies, nomads, skulls, roses, suns. The sky smiles on us tonight, the man says. You see that sickle moon? We call that the blood moon. Good night to hunt. Good night to die. Are you ready to die? They don't answer. They watch him smoke, exchanging uneasy glances. I didn't think so, the man says. Where are you all headed? Thermopolis? Cody? They look to each other, trying to decide if they should answer. Bill Shaw speaks up for the trio. Jackson, he says, how about you? The man looks beyond the fire at their small domed tent with a lantern burning within. The tent glows blue like the moon, and he looks up at the sky and smiles at it, as if the moon itself might be his destination. Oh, I'm right where I want to be, he says. The coyote resumes its yapping in the arroyo, and he shoots a glance in its direction. The boys jump at the sound. I guess we're the only ones here tonight, the man says. He looks straight into the eyes of the smallest of the three, a pale man-child with a hollow face and a sparse beard that makes him look craven and Christ-like. His eyes are red and his skin is clammy. He has a fevered look about him, the pallor of someone stricken with an ailment of the gut. The boy squirms under the scrutiny of the stranger. He feels himself being scanned as if the man knows more about him than he knows about himself. I saw someone else out there the boy says, camping in the ravine, a couple of Germans and a Volkswagen bus. The man smiles. He unzips the sleeves of his jacket where the cuffs meet his wrists. Germans, he says. What's your name, my friend? Andy, he says. Andy Gar. You think I'm here to rob you, don't you, Andy? 
The fire shifts and the logs fall in on themselves, sending into the air a plume of orange sparks. I didn't say that, Gar says. You didn't have to, the man says. I can see it in your eyes. He pulls a button at his throat and unsnaps it, releasing a triangular flap of leather that reveals yet another set of zippers beneath. He unzips those and removes his jacket, much to his great relief. What do you want, anyway? Gar says. I'm just looking for a little human company, that's all, the man says. Shaw pokes at the fire with a thin bough of manzanita and throws on a fresh hunk of wood. What about that light we saw earlier, Shaw says. What light? The man says. We saw a bright light. Out there. We heard a sound. The man folds his jacket and sits on it. I didn't see any light, he says. He lays his hands upon his knees with his palms open and turned up to the sky, and they can see now that his arms are adorned with a dazzling array of tattoos. You're here to see the tower, the man says. Am I right? He casts his gaze now upon the boy whose eyes spoke to him when he first approached their fire. We're just passing through, the boy says. Well, nobody comes up here anymore, the man says, unless they're here to see that rock formation yonder. Is that why you're here? The boy says. The man stares into his face and reads no malice in him, no game. That's part of it, he says. What's your name? Sturgis, he says. Is that your first name or your last? Last, the boy says. My name's Kane. Well, what do you know about the tower, Kane? Nothing, really. Only what I saw in that movie. Close encounters, whatever. Then you don't know shit, the man says. He spits into the fire and takes another hit from his silver flask. You sure you don't want any, he says. He looks at Kane and shakes the flask. The cap rattles against the sides of it. He holds it out to him. It's good whiskey, he says. Powerful good. Kane reaches for it. I'll have some of that, he says, and he takes a long swallow. The man grins. Feels nice inside you, don't it? He says. Kane nods and stands. The liquor warms his belly and the heat spreads fast, rising in his neck and face and running down his arms in waves. He feels the rush of blood and the power of the system that bears with it those things we swallow and breathe to the nether regions of ourselves. He staggers for a moment and sways. Careful now, the man says. He reaches out to steady him. Cain evades his touch. I'll be back, Cain says. I'm going to go for some more wood. He walks out over the prairie, beyond the firelight, and well beneath the glow of the stars, where dark clumps of sagebrush dot the landscape for miles before him, and where he can see no upright thing taller than himself other than the vast silhouette of Devil's Tower rising from the barren plain, like a great ship grounded there after some biblical flood. He walks further into the darkness to where there is no light but that of the small moon, the shape of the tower looms up as a dark shaft of blackness and is flat on top as a tree stump is flat when it's cut clean by a saw. It's a mysterious and magnetic presence in this otherwise barren place, and it speaks to him like all wonders of nature speak to those who seek and listen. He feels the great mass of the rock inside him like he felt the whiskey only moments before, and he feels the weight of the heavens in the last heat off the plain. The sky throbs like a phosphorescent sea. He cranes his neck to look up at the glory of it, 
all that ancient light, and again he sways. He loses his footing and stumbles, but he's caught by the hand of the stranger, who's suddenly there beside him in the dark. I warned you about that whiskey, he says. It's not that, Cain says. It's, it's the stars. Ah, the man says, the stars. Under a sky like this, you can almost go on living. I've never seen a sky like this, Cain says. I wonder how long it's been for me, the man says. What's that? Before you were born, I reckon, the man says. He turns to look into the boy's eyes, and though it's dark, he can see a sparkle there where the starlight has gathered, and in the eyes of the boy he can see that he has not suffered nor seen suffering or much of what lies hidden in the black hearts of men. He sees in the boy the blind faith of a dog, that whirl of magic, the hope and wonder, and he tries to remember what age he'd been when that look began to fade. He takes a deep breath. Let's see now. I've not seen a star in over twenty years, he says, and he squats there on the ground and runs his fingers through the dust at his feet. When I was a boy, he says, my grandfather brought me here to show me the endless sky in the open plain. He tried to show me where I came from and the small things of great beauty I'd never bothered to see. I remember the last time, I think I was about twelve, the wind blew right through my coat, that cold prairie wind carrying with it the smell of creosote and deer musk. He held me by the hand. I can still feel it, his hand. He led me out here into the dark looking for something. I didn't know what it was at the time and he didn't tell me. He said if we found it, I'd know. He was trying to show me the mysteries, the things we can't know until we're ready or we're dead. I think we might have stood right here on this very spot. In the distance, they hear the coyotes start up again, and the night sounds of small insects and birds. On the horizon, a brilliant shooting star drifts over them as slow as a distant airliner. Somewhere, there's the sound of someone tapping on the rim of a camp pot with a spoon. I've been in prison, the man says. Twenty-five years. Day before yesterday, I was behind bars. They look out over the prairie. Kane shuts his eyes. He holds his breath. He feels his heart beating. I can't even imagine that, Kane says. No one can, the man says. The sky above them shimmers and a cool wind blows in from the east. There's more than one coyote about now and they can hear the shrill, yap-like howls spoken between them. They sound almost human and Kane recognizes something in their calling. Sometimes you can feel like you're in prison in your own life. Cain says. Ain't that the truth, the man says. Walls of flesh, bars of bone. No matter where you are, you're trapped inside yourself. Who are you? Cain says. The man looks at him, his face, a boy, a child. My name is Tom Yodi, he says. I did 26 years at Green River for killing my father with a broomstick. I was younger than you. All around them, the night sounds of the desert scrubland, prairie dog chatter, and the small bark of coyote. Jesus, Kane says. Jesus Christ. Yodi waves him off. He had it coming, Yodi says. He would have killed me eventually. Tell me, Kane, what brought you to this place on this night? Two months ago, I was a bond trader, Kane says. Wall Street, right out of school. 
Never in my life did I imagine I'd find myself in a place like this. I'd never even been off the East Coast. Never saw a mountain or a canyon or a true blanket of stars. Well, sometimes a man's got to leave everything to find out who he really is, Yodi says. My father thought I was crazy, Kane says. Ruining my future. Yeah? What do you think? I think the future he saw for me was a replay of his own life. He rode that train into the city every day for 30 years and for what? Houses, boats, cars. He could tell you about the wind. He was an expert on celestial navigation and modern hull design. He knew all about real estate and stocks. What a wasted life. A wasted life, Yodi says. You know what saved me, though? Books, words, Salinger, Hemingway, Herman Hesse. Yeah, I had words, Yodi says. I had letters from my father. The moon has risen now, and Cain can see into the man's face. He looks younger in the moonlight. His eyes do. He can see that they're dark and sad, like the Indian in the TV commercial, the one on horseback who weeps at the garbage on the side of the road. That's when Yodi takes Cain's hand. He holds it for a moment, gently, like a wounded bird, and Cain does not pull away. He can feel the man's rough skin, his thick, calloused fingers, the creases between them, the bitten bristle of broken nail and scabbed knuckle. These are hands that took the life of men. Strong, heavy, damaged, broken hands that held men down, that held iron bars, the edges of steel tables, concrete walls, and secret sharpened spoons cut off from everything good and severed from the heart. He feels the deadly power of Tom Yodi's grip, its strength, its ferocity, and something else, something old and mystical. There's more than sheer strength at work here. There's a power, a force, a great spirit whose origin resides in all living things, the word, the light, the breath, its energy both intimate and alive, and Cain can feel it, a pulse of blue-white fire that passes between them. Yodi squeezes harder, and he crosses a threshold he cannot name. Cain falls to his knees in his grip, blind with fear and wonder. What this moment holds for him is someplace in between. His arms shake, and Yodi does not let go. He holds him there at his feet and stares at him. A single point of being, focused narrow and sharp, streaming through Yodi's eyes. Everything he is or was, every dark night, every cold morning, all his wounds and dreams. If Yodi wanted to kill him, he would already be dead, but murder will not serve this moment, nor will it serve the man. Yodi feels this too. He feels the boy. He feels himself through him, and he knows now it must be done. He lets go of Cain's hand, and for a moment there's nothing, no sound, no earth, no stars. Now you know me, Yodi says. Cain kneels before him. He still feels the odd sensation of Yodi's callous skin. He stands slowly and looks at the sky. Gemini is the constellation that rises above them now. He sees Castor and Pollux. He sees Saturn, where his father promised him it would always be, just to the left of those stars. They both turn to look out toward the tower, and what they see is a dark void in the sky where the great stone has blacked out the Milky Way. I need me a smoke, Yodi says. The coyotes have begun to howl. They hear them yip and scurry in the underbrush. The boys watch Yodi remove his shirt. The fire burns hot, and the flames rise high above the circle of stones that contains it. 
In the light of the tall flames, they can see the tattoos on his body and arms. Great Indian chiefs in war bonnets and herds of Mustang ponies on the run. Loping bison amidst flocks of chevrons and thunderbolts. Slender antelope, the disembodied heads of elk and bear. And on his chest, the face of a withered man whose eyes are so finely rendered they appear to shine in the light of the fire. Below this face is the tower itself. This is where our chiefs would come, Yodi says, pointing to the tower on his chest. The Lodge of the Bear is what we call it, and it was here we'd come for dreams and for death. He leans over and reaches into the fire for the long manzanita bough they used as a poke. He stirs the coals. I'm mostly Cheyenne, he says, but my grandfather was Crow. I was born in the Black Hills, in the same room my daddy was. Adobe walls, mud floor. I was raised in the light of tallow candles and lantern wicks. Dim, unsteady light. That room was always filled with shadows. Its walls were orange and red like the inside of a kiln. But the corners were dark. Light could not reach into the corners where I would hide and watch. In firelight, you can see the bad in a man. That's what my father always said, and he was right. I never saw his face in anything but the light of fire. They say he was a good man once, but I never saw nothing but meanness and anger. And one day I just had enough. I killed him in the room where he was born. Yodi takes a cigarette from the pack that lies open before them. The young men look into the fire. The wind tosses up a shower of sparks, blowing the flames sideways and fanning the coals beneath so that they crackle and flare. They can hear the bark of the coyote in a new place altogether. Cain looks out toward the tower in the distance and imagines the great mother ship that descended upon it in the movie. He was just a little boy when he saw it with his father, and he couldn't sleep that night for fear that his toys would come to life. He couldn't shake the image of that man, either, Richard Dreyfus, feverishly building a mud-scale model of the tower in his living room, destroying everything, ripping apart his house, his yard, and in the end, his family, so that this mysterious compulsion might somehow become realized. He was a man who had a question that burned within him. He was a man who had to know. That face on your chest, he says to Yodi, who is that? Yodi stands at the edge of the fire. He turns his head to the sky. His name is Sweet Medicine, he says. And he is the great prophet of the Cheyenne who foretold the coming of the whites. He saw the coming of horses and cattle and said that the white man would fly above the earth in machines and harness the light of the sun. He warned us, said they'd steal the thunder from the sky and drain the earth of its blood until it was dead. Yodi gestures out toward the horizon where they can see the tower rising up from the prairie like a tombstone. Our people would come here to fast and to worship, Yodi says. They would build small enclosures made of stones. The idea was a man would lie inside, cover himself up, his head to the east, his feet to the west, to align with the rising and the setting of the sun, and he would see visions. His future would be revealed to him in blazing clarity. But those structures have all been desecrated. Their stones are scattered, and their spirits wander now in shame and confusion. Dream houses, they called them. He reaches back to unloose his hair, and it blows in the wind. I used to hear those spirits, he says, lying there in Green River. I heard them calling to me to come.
My father, my true father, said that a man should return to the place he remembers. He should give himself back to the land from which he came. The smoke rises and the embers glow. The fire crackles. The air has grown cold and they can see their breath. Yodi stands. The boys watch him pull a bone-handled knife from the insole of his boot. The knife gleams as Yodi turns it in the firelight, running his thumb down the blade. He's not satisfied with his edge. Trade knife, he says. My grandfather's. His grandfather's. He pulls a small sharpening stone from his pocket and spits on it. He runs it deftly down the edge of the blade. They watch him, listening to the sound of the knife on the soft stone. And after several strokes, he tests the edge and returns it to its sheath. He picks up his coat and lights a last cigarette. Sleep well, weary travelers, he says, and he heads off into the night. They watch him vanish into the darkness of the arroyo. None of them speak. They wait. The prairie around them is silent. Cain stands watching after Yodi until he vanishes into the darkness. Cain stands before the smoldering fire in the hour before dawn. Bill and Andy sleep on. The ground that stretches out before the tent is pale blue and the sky above is blazing with the gathered light of a thousand swirling galaxies. Manhattan is far behind him now and he sees the wide arching swath of the Milky Way, its head buried in the west, its tail anchored in the coastal woods of Maine. He walks out onto the prairie down into the arroyo behind the tent. He wanders through the dry brush and spooks a pair of deer. They bound off with drumbeat hooves in the dust, and he watches them split off toward opposite ends of the plain. In a moment they're gone, and he hears the coyotes as they speak across the great span of sage. He marvels at the life nocturnal, the low call of a burrowing owl, the chitter of desert rats. The ground at his feet sparkles, and clumps of sage stretch out for miles. The sights and sounds of this place, this moment in time, these shadows, this light, Tom Yodi at the fire, this is where he is now, here, on the high prairie, where Indians came to pray, where the mothership landed in the lee of the great basalt spire, and where sweet medicine lies waiting for the doom. Cain shivers in the cool night as he walks through this dreamscape. He's drawn toward the tower and walks a mile in a cold stupor until he comes upon the charred remains of what appears to be a vehicle recently set ablaze. It's a motorcycle. An old BMW Slash 5 with its once shiny tank distorted and charred. His father had one just like it. The bike is balanced on its center stand, the seat melted away, the tires still smoldering, a Texaco can lying on the ground. He shakes the can and it makes a haunted warping sound. And then he sees it. A strange shadow, a dark spot out on the prairie. He comes upon a low mound of stones, each as big as a grapefruit, and arranged in a long barrel-like pile with the boots and leather jacket of Tom Yodi rolled neatly beside it, his bone knife there in a black pool of what appears to be motor oil. The stones are smooth and heavy. They were chosen well for this purpose, and Yodi planned it well. Cain imagines him lying awake on his prison bed, dreaming of this night. How many years did it take to form this end? He sees him on the cold floor of his small cell in a slow-motion pantomime of this ritual of knife and stone, the voices of the great chiefs calling to him, the wailing songs of those scattered souls, the drums, the rhythmic chanting. Cain pulls the stones from the pile, and Yodi's face appears pale as the dust itself. 
His neck is thick and muscled, and he feels a weak pulse there. The stones clack together as he throws them aside. His wrists are cut from palms to elbows. There is much blood. In the Boy Scouts, he learned about the golden hour. Serious trauma requires urgent care within 60 minutes. That hour has long passed. Even if he could carry him back to the van, even if he could somehow find a hospital, it would not change this. How many times did he construct his dream house there in the darkness of his isolation, night after night, dawn after dawn? The earth turns and the sky begins to brighten at the horizon. The stars above him wobble and blink and he holds Tom Yodi in his lap. His head lolls back and he can smell his hair. And the smell is not unlike leather that's been wet and then dried in the sun. And he remembers the holster of his father's revolver. The inside of his mother's purse, his baseball glove, a small sailmaker's palm. By the time the sun comes up over the land, he is dead. The light is startling and he can see the shadows race across the prairie. He sees Yodi's face and into his eyes. He sees his smooth skin, the tattoos on his chest and belly, rendered with the precision of one who understands how to evoke the spirit of the dead from the body of the living. An Edward Curtis photograph, faded, gone. Yodi's eyes are open and they stare beyond the sky. They seem to be smiling. Kane's father died in the bleak misery of a hospital bed eight days before he left New York his skin punctured with needles and festooned with plastic tubes. In the hour of his death, his father's eyes stared up at the acoustic tile above his bed. How many times had he counted the holes in that tile, sitting there, waiting? How many holes? He lays Yodi down within the foundation of his dream house and covers him again with the stones. He does not shut his eyes. He builds the mound back up over his face and lays the knife by his side. He unfolds the leather jacket and finds there a bundle of letters bound with a rawhide cord. He takes the letters but leaves the jacket and walks up out of the ravine and across the stretch of prairie he had crossed before. It is quiet. The wildlife is gone. All he can hear now is the wind. Before long, he passes the camp of the Germans and sees them standing bare-chested before a weak fire. One of them is cooking before a camp stove. The other is brushing his teeth in the side-view mirror of the VW. They see him and wave. He doesn't wave back. He moves on toward his own encampment where a ribbon of smoke still rises up into a cloudless sky. The tent is covered in tiny droplets of dew. Inside, they're still asleep, still dreaming. He feeds the coal bed dry twigs and sage buds and sits before the small fire, with the sky in the east glowing pale and amber. And in that dim light, he opens the bundle and reads the letters of Tom Yodi. The End Vincent Lewis Corella is a writer, photographer, and father. He's an East Coast soul with a West Coast heart who followed the Grateful Dead to San Francisco only to discover he was fashionably late to the summer of love. He has a pretty good blog on WordPress but his passion is the short story. His debut novel, Serpent Box, Harper Perennial, lies moldering in a remainder bin somewhere near you. Thanks for listening to this edition of Bound Off, copyright Bound Off and the respective authors. All rights reserved. <laughs>